asked the question, how was the pandemic, is already uh, hard to answer because it is. <laughs> and um, I have trouble drawing marking points um, and before and afters. There is a kind of distinct um, shift that happened in March 2020, of course. Um, but especially since then, it feels like a lot of divergences and twists and turns, but very much a continuous road. Um, so I'm curious how that will feel in another year, five, ten years. Um, New York had a specific um, like wave uh, that hit pretty hard at the beginning. Um, and America isn't known for dealing with these things well. Lots of places aren't. Um, but there was a lot of confusion. And um, yeah, and my, I have an underlying health condition. And so at that point, it was really frightening. Um, so I was extremely strict, unfortunately. Um, and I had never um, been stuck at home with my partner like that either. So neither of us left the house for three months, pretty much. Um, and he had just moved in with me. So we were definitely um, experiencing an entirely new <laughs> phase of our relationship really quickly. So I think for me, um, that beginning part of the pandemic was marked by kind of abject terror and also general confusion about what a life structure would look like. Um, and for me, at least, and this is something I've written a lot about, it became like a totalizing work environment, which I think happened to a lot of people. Um, so the, the kind of hell at the center of it was that there were no edges around work. Yeah, absolutely. Were you writing in that particular moment? Were you writing at home while we were yeah. in this sort of lockdown moment? Yeah, I was because um, that's how I make a living. So, yeah. <laughs> and so um, the question of creative energy... Uh, I always try to put that aside because um, writing is my profession as much as it is my um, my world and my way of being in the world. Um, so at times like that, I did not, uh, well, I'll say a lot of projects slowed down or stopped or got really confused. There was a lot of confusion about certain projects. Um, but there was no moment where I kind of stopped until interestingly, a year and a half later when I finally burned out <laughs> and I had to take some time off work but that was delayed yeah 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 I, I guess this was uh, shared by, by by many many uh, people I mean even, even myself at the very beginning it was this this weird overload of uh, between information then this uh, as you mentioned com commonplace uh, sensation about how work invaded our our space which was as well a space for isolation and then this sort of lack lack of energy and, and, and i don't know collapse because for me the, the the first year was kind of okay and i was as well isolating quite hard because of underlying conditions but after the first year i mean the the impact it was uh, i guess super dramatic in the psyche so of individuals, yeah. particularly if you try to be responsible. No. Yeah, I found it to be most challenging actually when lockdown uh, lifted and hmm. things were supposed to be more open or more um, 
free. And I think that for a lot of people that whiplash was actually the moment when psychologically it became um, too unbearable, which is unfortunate and strange. Mm. And you've been interested uh, for many years in the weird in different ways. And uh, I wonder what was the origins to this interest and whether the pandemic has changed maybe uh, your understanding of it because it certainly became, you know, reality itself is becoming increasingly, you know, weirder and stranger and more difficult to comprehend. I don't know why weird became what I was interested in. <laughs> I have no idea. I suppose just like all things, the giant stack of books um, on my desk at all times led me there. And somehow the, um, I think I was, well, I was working on a novel um, some years ago. It came out almost three years ago now. So um, it wasn't until I was almost, I think, done with that book that I came across this idea of the new weird. Mm -hmm. um, and I was surprised to find out that the fiction that I had written was very much within the territory of that terminology. So was this novel Oval? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's called Oval. And um, yeah, I had not been working with science fiction exactly. I had certainly not been working with fantasy, but I was kind of um, nudging at the edges of realism and I was, um, I was not sure how to situate that work. Um, so it was interesting to find a whole framework for thinking about it somewhat after the fact. Um, and that framework led me to a, like a long investigation into genre fiction and what genres can do and what they can hinder. Um, and for me, I suppose um, that interest certainly carried through the pandemic. <laughs> um, and um, the question of genre became like kind of exploded into all different realms. Um, I guess thinking about life, um, like the way that the media functions as a genre of fiction or thinking about the way that we imagine our lives as genres and um, how genre bending could actually be a way of um, thinking about um, living differently and not just um, writing and reading differently. Um, I don't know, I couldn't probably say more about that, but, um, but I guess the idea is just like science fiction has a particular relationship to the future and to futurism, whereas this genre of weirdness or new weird um, really questions that idea of technological progress or forward movement. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very interesting the contrast that we can find, for example, in one of the essays uh, in Death by Landscape, the contrast that we could build from the new weird or the weird and then different science fictional uh, futures such as, for example, solar punk and the engagement with technology and the future and yeah it's quite interesting the context in which we live and how this this genre as as you mentioned has been co-opted by let's say uh, but certain individuals that at the end they are for example engaging quite a lot with the futures imagined by the potential of uh, decentralized autonomous organizations, cryptocurrencies, etc. But there is this in, uh, 
tension or internal rift because obviously the, the futures that could be possible out of uh, yeah uh, DAOs or, or crypto are, are futures that um, yeah make very very present the idea of energy consumption so it's for me at least difficult to reconciliate this quite accelerate accelerationist portrait of the future with um, I don't know with this more utopian kind of new age uh, idea of a solar punk uh, that could have I don't know very interesting world building capacities I don't know if after the the moment in which you wrote this essay and all these new things that are going on with uh, crypto uh, some ideas change or do you have anything to say in this regard well I think um, on it is important to be specific about what new technologies offer and the different utopian and dystopian potentials that are very very specific to them and crypto deserves a lot of conversation um, about its particular affordances its particular you know the, the clear drawbacks in terms of energy consumption and the consolidation of wealth uh, that it has turned out to enable rather than the opposite but I also think it's just important to always contextualize and just say clearly that no new technology is uh, positive or negative inherently that new technologies and like uh, renewable energy well yeah um the situation changed because obviously you know for many people uh, like performance artists musicians or even visual artists uh, the omnipresence of uh, nfts or new platforms built out of blockchain um, this is transforming the landscape like the possibilities in which we can construct a future for many different disciplines uh, and even though yeah we are not uh, sure about how to how to address these questions how to address the problems that crypto could entail um, in my opinion in terms of subculture uh, and in terms of this optimism that we could or some people could draw on the use of these technologies goes pretty much hand in hand with certain new age and solar punk ideas yeah so in response to your um very good question um i think one thing that's important to say is simply that this technology isn't brand new i mean i've been familiar with it since uh, at least 2014 Um, and a lot of early experiments were really exciting, actually. And um, I think maybe some of the work that needs to be done now is uncovering those early projects and talking about the potential that they held um, before the finance center se sector got interested. <laughs> so um, something very different happens when people realize um, that they can, you know, um, generate wealth. Um, and then a lot of the potential of what the technology really could do in service of change or in service of community building or in service of new kinds of autonomy for artists and producers, that that stuff easily gets take, thrown by the wayside um, when the 
you know, the investors jump in. So I would also kind of like question the idea of omnipresence. I do think there are some like really, really smart artists and collectives working um, to do, you know, working really hard to do interesting things with crypto. Um, and some of them finding ways to support themselves, which is fantastic. Like any way that, that a creative person can support um, the creative work is great. Um, but the other omnipresence has really kind of become financialized. The financial sector um, has eaten up the resources. And, um, and on the other hand, there are a lot of people who are making kind of small amounts of money, um, just like micro investors um, who are kind of unusual demographics that you wouldn't expect. Um, but I don't know if it's fair to say yet that the landscape of creative production has changed. I mean, I don't think galleries and institutions have yet come around if we are taking them as markers of what's going on in the culture industry. And I'm not sure that mainstream media has completely embraced this. And, you know, I, I follow crypto. I don't really, I mean... Besides having some, I don't participate very much. I'm just interested in it. So not that, not that my participation is the marker of a shifting landscape, but I think there are a lot of ways to engage and they're not all, um, um, they're not all completely embracing. I mean, I think a lot of us who have been familiar with this discourse for a long time um, are like, you know, it's all we think about or something, but I know probably the majority of my friends don't think in these terms. And would you mind uh, talking a bit about the projects that you found very inspiring either then or now that you think that they are doing the most interesting stuff with these technologies? Um, sure. Um, I think Harm van den Dorpel is an artist who's been working in this area for a really long time, who I think is always doing the most fun and interesting things with it. There's a real humor to his engagement. Um, and I think um, this this group of people, Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst and um, um, the people behind New Models have just launched a new platform that I'm certainly watching and find very interesting, um, which will be, uh, I guess, a yeah, a platform for people to um, to organize their either their own NFTs or their own decentralized um, groups for um, investing in and supporting each other's projects. And then Um, Emily Siegel launched a novel, um, and um, I think also Dina Yego launched an essay that were um, sort of prominent early adopters of the NFT model for text. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Matt was here, and uh, we remember like talking about some of these issues. Uh, yeah, almost two years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because this has nothing to do with the complete fan art, uh, like uh, extension of the finance aspect to every single aspect of the network. Obviously, when I was talking about the omnipresence, I was talking more in terms of yeah, using uh, websites or like finance, etc., buying adverts for football teams and stuff like that, mm -hmm. not the potential yeah. of the platform or 
or well, control. certainly governments. I mean, it's not irrelevant that Russia's yeah. <laughs> regime is extremely involved in crypto uh, and you know sucking a lot of it up at the moment. So I'm not. I'm certainly not saying you know this is irrelevant or something. But your question, I felt like, was geared more towards the culture landscape, where I do think it's a bit more variegated and hard to say. There are people who are really literate, and a lot of people who have no interest in being literate in this stuff. Yeah, I mean this. Yeah, this uh, bridge—it's difficult to to solve. I mean, because as you say, uh, there is this sort of binary reaction towards the world of uh, crypto and blockchain. And I don't know because, for example, as you mentioned, in the current context, no, we're for example operating with credit or debit cards, uh, seems to be limited in a context like uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we can see the, yeah, the crucial aspect no, of this notion of bypass, bypassing th central authorities and how this could be disruptive for, for very, I mean, <laughs> for very important models in what we call uh, civilization this distrust this idea of trust no? that we deposit on these authorities and my the, the the long sort of shot with with my previous question is precisely because yeah when we transform or when we construct yeah, an idea of the world that could be very speculative or it could be quite science fictional we are already yeah, introducing cer certain notions uh, that replace all old forms of, yeah, of relationship between humans and institutions. So for example, in, in the book, you mention a lot of ex existential risks no? or potential uh, potential collapses and and it's interesting uh, to see for example uh, now these days how little we speculate with very very uh, negative aspects that could arise precisely out of the um, how to put this without sounding um, yeah so when we remove no this this notion of authority or central authority that has to take responsibility for certain actions no how in this bypass of the authority there is um, this notion of the disappearance of yeah taking responsibility for potential disruptions, no? potential uh, huge disruptions of actually the, the, the fabric of our platforms, our communities, etc. So I do wonder if we are going to see soon like dystopians based on very negative outcomes of, of the use of blockchain. Or Yeah, I think we're probably there. I mean, I think like all, you know, dystopic and utopic situations the ones occurring at scale are the dystopian ones but if you look at 
small scale initiatives and people working in um, much, much smaller realms of collaboration, you can find plenty of micro utopias. And so while a group of artists or cultural workers might make a DAO that allows like a really um, autonomous and decentralized um, mode of supporting one another and generating really exciting new work, you know, that's certainly not the same kind of disruption that we're talking about when we think about Russia disrupting the currency market um, for their own benefit and for what is the exact opposite, which is the centralization of power. Um, so, I, I mean, just because something is called a DAO doesn't mean it can't work in service of centralization. So, but again, I would always just look at scale. I would always say, you know, the nation state is going to use this very differently than, you know, um, a group of students, for instance. And you can't discount what the technology is doing on both those levels, but you always have to look laterally and say, you know, how is the same principle being completely flipped to serve power um, because, um, you know, power can recuperate and recycle anything. Absolutely. And in terms of your discipline, like writing, uh, what do you think uh, are the potentials for for this discipline? Because we are seeing examples, many examples in terms of meta-organization or visual art. But I am really curious about writers um, Uh, people working with narratives, uh, what sort of potentials are are there in in DAOs and in blockchain? Um, I mean, I think the most obvious example is to use um, NFT support um, to make a new kind of commodity out of it. Um, But I mean, I guess I might answer that question a little differently and say like, what is a DAO without the technology? Like maybe, I mean, looking at all sorts of ways that art and literature, uh, I guess text is what we're talking about, have been expanded beyond the single author or the single producer. You can look at the way zines have always functioned. Um, You could look at the way games work to bring text to life. I'm really interested in my book of essays um, in live action role play, um, which is a totally like uh, unique kind of DAO in a way. It's like a, you know, um, I guess specifically the kind of LARP that I'm talking about in that book is really interested in the game mechanics and the consent and the community building that happened in this kind of mutual uh, simulated space. And I think those kinds of principles for how to um, create um, supportive and really also risky and exciting social worlds could be imported into um, like a landscape that's um, supported by blockchain technology um but i would always maybe start with the principles of like what can what do we want to do with like text what do we want to do with distributing authorship how do we want to cooperate and then think about how the technology can support it rather than the other way around so um literature has always been really um well not maybe not the you know the stuff you find um as a bestseller on amazon but you know like epistolary novels novels with hundreds of collaborative authors, early internet experiments where people were writing in the same document at the same time, feedback loops between authors and readership. Fan fiction is a great kind of DAO. Like if you, I mean, of course I'm using that term loosely to really just think about decentralization of authorship and and not specifically in terms of blockchain. But um, 
but I just think all of these kinds of projects could be really well supported. Um, like I, I think communal authorship and I think fan fiction are probably like, like I'm sure there's a fan fiction universe out there that's already kind of doing something like this. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It seems to uh, connect to the um, to what you were talking previously about kind of embodying a genre of, uh, of, of, of writing or like how to live it through and I think yeah maybe through certain techniques or LARP or th through the specific methodology which might be collaborative it also changes the way that you are and the way that you interact and the way that the writing becomes and um, yeah yeah if you if you could yeah, I mean you already mentioned some examples but like if you have there been any specific kind of approach that you found that is really bringing something forward, that the methodology is really, you know, bringing something that it has was not there before. Possibilities that technology offers, but then that the approach to use it generates a new form of writing or a new genre of writing that it also kind of uh, can be a way of changing the subjects that are part of the process. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about the way that I think about this in my own work a little bit. I don't I I don't want to map my own uh, philosophy onto other people's projects so much, but um I could talk about how um I wrote I wrote this novel and then um along with a friend Susan Plotz, I made um we made a larp of the book and then the way that that larp um, developed, influenced the way that I thought about the book, changed the way that I finished writing it, and then that whole experience I wrote about in an essay about how books can't be self-contained and why don't we try um, exploding them more into multiple forms and handing them over to other people. And in that essay I talk about all sorts of things that we could do that someday I would love to have the resources to do, which would be like um, bringing a group of people together in a role play scenario where they um, generate text in the space. And then that text is then um, uh, probably like um, authored, reauthored by one person after the fact, and then brought back to the group to act out again. Um, so many possibilities uh, come up when you think about bringing um, a text or to a group or using the group as the way of generating a text. Um, and I've had lots of really positive experiences working with other people um, as collaborative writers. So I do think of writing as collaborative. Also, I think something that isn't talked about enough is just that the editing process with texts can be like extremely collaborative. Um, so I, I don't know any author who really thinks about this as like an entire solitary pursuit. Almost everything I write, I send to a bunch of friends and we talk about it and they send it back with comments or whatever. Um, and I really love the same thing happening in return. So I, I don't know, I see texts as really living organisms and they're working best when they're bridging between people and creating conversations. And then, you know, and then we do a podcast about it. Yeah, absolutely. And do you see connections with <clears throat> your interest in? in plants because I was fascinated. I am as well uh, a big fan of Manuel Cochia and his book Life of Plants. Uh, and I found fascinating this uh, this presence in, in your essays. I don't know, I think uh, we are um, 
now thinking about living organisms that go beyond the discreteness of, let's say, a human body. No, um, yeah, plants are a, a very good example of this connection with the environment, as well that this could be seen in uh, the example that you put regarding yeah the feedback that you receive from friends when you are trying to edit a text uh, i don't know if you could talk a little bit about yeah this connection with the plant uh, world and, and the role that it plays in death by landscape sure um uh, i like the way that emmanuel cochia talks about plants as um both having two bodies and you know one that is um, embedded in the landscape and one that reaches out from the landscape he calls them domestic titans with the power to create new worlds which i think of it's just like domestic titan is a great name for what happened to everyone during quarantine yeah. <laughs> um, and i also like his emphasis on the fact that there's no atmosphere without plants like there is no um, connective space between other organisms on the planet without plants creating the um, the you know the carbon dioxide that we need to survive and um, plants sort of um, as the origin makers of this really the atmosphere what what the planet um, runs on um, and is surrounded by um, and then I guess I also in one essay I connect his text to a really beautiful book called um, The Second Body by Daisy Hildyard, um, which is about this idea that in the era of climate change, we all have two bodies. We had the body that is the self-contained, um, bounded um, meat and tissue that we usually think of the body as. And then we have the second body, which is, I would say, or I say in the book, this ecosystemic body. Um, the body that is somehow abstracted and that we understand has an influence on, um, you know, global warming, species dec decimation, um, <laughs> like extremely large things that we can't actually observe very often with the naked eye, but that we're very aware of happening. And we understand that our bodies are wound up in these processes, but it's completely um, bizarre and, and mysterious in what ways actually so you know you might try to intervene in small ways but you will never really get a tangible sense of how these two bodies connect um so i liked placing that in um conjunction with emmanuel cochia's idea of the plant having two bodies um and i like the plant also it's it comes up throughout the book this idea of having a context having a community having an atmosphere and that like the place to begin might be in a certain type of rootedness. Um, and I'm not talking about something like localism. I'm talking about um, like a true awareness of how one's context and community produce one's subjectivity and kind of beginning to think of, mm, let's say the end of the world <laughs> from this perspective of everyone is somewhere. I wanted to ask you a bit about the process of making your book into a LARP game and like you, how was that and you know how how did it worked like how you know how many people were involved and how long did it take and yeah, it sounds like a fascinating idea yeah 
It was great. It was really, really fun. Um, if I hadn't had Susan helping, I wouldn't have known where to begin because it turns out it's very hard to imagine how to turn something that you're very immersed in and attached to into a game and give it over to other people. So I think that is kind of this thing that I keep returning to is like, what would it mean to give to give a story to other people and let them let them reauthor or co-author it? Um, it's confusing and it's hard because we're not used to working that way. Um, but uh, yeah, it was in Vilnius. I was at a residency called Rupert, and um, I think we had eight participants. We gave them character descriptions. Um, Susan and I played these kind of like corporate executives who were intervening in their lives and kind of propelling the story forward. And um, yeah, and then there was this great moment where the participants kind of like roped us into the game and kind of subverted the power structure that we had set up where we were the people running the game, um, which to me was a very beautiful metaphor for what it might be like to, um, to distribute control and power that comes along with single authorship. And how long did it last? Yeah, a couple hours, I don't know, four hours, maybe five or six with the workshop beforehand and the debrief afterwards. Nice, very, very nice. Uh, it's really good. I mean, uh, without doubts, it's something that, I mean, we can see the, as well with the success of this video game, which actually it was thought to be a novel. I don't know if you have heard about this coalition. Oh, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, that uh, finally the, the form that it took was a... a role uh, video game but mm -hmm. uh, pre pretty much the stuff that you do is to read to read the speculative fiction yeah. so it's uh, it's something that you can see how how in the future should engage particularly like young people that they see the format of yeah of a novel that it's printed and has a particular authorship and a particular evolution uh, as, as, as something that uh, yeah is um, quite I don't know how to say uh, this but not old fashioned but yeah that uh, limitates itself to a domain that by nature narratives try to disrupt its own boundaries no? it's something that even oralism or the oral transmission goes beyond the limitations of of text. Uh, what I was going to ask you is about yeah the the importance of mysticism and the role of mystics in in the book because are quite present as well, and I am really curious about your your interest in connecting yeah the weird with as well the life of plants and then the yeah this uh, mysticism and mystics that appear in your work sure um originally i came across mystics simply because of a class that i took taught by eugene thacker and simon critchley and i had never looked to um i had never looked to religious frameworks it had never occurred to me this was some i think three or four years ago now um but I didn't realize that mysticism is not um, tethered to religious practices. And that's become very clear. Um, mysticism is often recuperated by religion and the frameworks it offers, but it's um, uh, its its own historical phenomenon. Um, 
The interest in mysticism recurs a lot in the work in ways that, um, let's see, were really unexpected. I started by writing about female mystical traditions in relationship to um, this uh, trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer, the Southern Reach trilogy, hmm. um, which I found to be a, an extremely mystical text in a very particular way. Um, again, breaking genre. I mean, mysticism is a way of thinking about writing and reading and engaging the world outside of genre because it 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 is fundamentally weird. It bumps up against the edges of the explicable or the codified. Um, it really disrupts um, boundaries around knowledge um, because mystical encounters arrive um, without um, without explanation. And as, if you try to explain them, you're missing the point. I think that's my argument. <laughs> I think a lot of what I deal with in the book is this kind of like the boundary of explanation um, and how you can really like, um, you can really delete the joy of living in the world if you insist on, um, on, on unearthing hidden meanings from everything um, and rather than allowing them to be. So, um, so I do a lot of sort of literary critical work to, to read texts and say, you know, let's not apply Freudian psychoanalysis to this. <laughs> let's, let's, um, let's approach it as a, um, as a real proposition rather than this kind of paranoid project of always reading texts as if they're trying to conceal something from you or trying to hide something. Um, it's a very conspiratorial way of thinking and reading this kind of like, um, if only I could discover the true subtext out there, I would be able to get a handle on things. Um, and I, I think that that's, um, that's a perspective that, um, that you can really see in, in public discourse all over the place and online discourse. Um, so I'm trying to move away from a paranoiac lens. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, and it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, this, the, the figure of the mystic precisely does that, no? rejects um, the given dogma or the given access to the text in order to be enlightened and it's to some extent self-taught by its own approach towards the outside or towards knowledge or towards yeah the acquisition of uh, of this vision so it's uh, yeah it's quite shocking to see this in contrast precisely uh, to these conspiratorial approaches or this uh, quote that you do of Donna Haraway no? the fact that we are not in charge of the world in terms as well not only of this sort of responsibility but as well because there is no one in charge there is no way in which all these notes are conspiring in order to produce a sort of cascade of deterministic events there is no one uh, guiding or piloting the how things unfold uh, there is something liberatory about this sort of mystical approach that I can see in, in many people around and I don't know if if you have thought about about this uh, in 
terms of a sort of temporal response to the world in which we live. You know what I mean? A world in which, yeah, in which conspiracy theories, they have traction again. There is a sort of, yeah, breakdown of consensus reality, progressive fragmentation, and it's so difficult to to find meaning. Yeah, I guess I'll start by saying that a lot of conspiracies are true. And then, like, if I think um, I'm a fan of con a lot of conspiracies. I find them fascinating and, you know, really useful. I mean, it's been said that conspiracies sort of highlight the fears of a given era, but something, I think there's something much more interesting going on, which is simply that capitalism is a conspiracy and that um, there's absolutely no reason <laughs> to disavow the feeling that most people or a lot of people have that there are forces conspiring against them because they simply are. I mean, you know, most of us are not in charge. Um, but this does not mean that we can reduce our worldview to a conspiracy like, I guess I would specifically say a paranoiac worldview. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, like allowing that there are some pretty nefarious conspiracies going on does not mean that the project of interpreting the world or living in the world should be this one of constantly digging um, and obsessively trying to find um, the people pulling the strings of reality. Because um, it, it's much more networked and much more um, insidious and much more frightening than that. I mean, there's never going to be, like, we're not in the era of the man anymore. Like, power operates in, like, way more complicated and, in, you know, ways with where front lines are not so easily drawn. It's very hard to find the front lines of struggle. Um, but, yeah, I guess I do think there. it's not a contradiction to say that there are a lot of conspiracies going on, but that doesn't mean that a conspiratorial worldview is an, an appropriate one. Yeah, no, absolutely. But do you think that there is a sort of response from individuals that they do not want to participate in this sort of paranoid uh, engagement with conspiracy towards this sort of, I don't know if you uh, would define this as mystical or spiritual attitudes of like self-enlightenment or trying to find meaning in a highly as you mentioned highly chaotic uh, world that there is no clear uh, guide or there is no clear source for meaning or knowledge I think it comes back to the body and maybe this idea of the two body problem and um, a mystical encounter it's worth saying as an embodied encounter, it's a physical one as much as a cognitive experience. Um, it's an affective experience. Um, and um, I don't know, I mean, I wouldn't want to draw like a hard line and say there's a body-based encounter and then a different kind, but it, it is that we have two bodies and that um, um, like the conspiratorial way of thinking is entirely concerned with the second body um, rather than the first, the way that we're all wrapped up in and convoluted systems of power rather than the sort of plant body that's stuck in the earth that has um, the potential for like a mystical moment. Um, I don't know. I guess I would also like, um, I would say that like 
conspiracies can also be used as like a, a tool of like safeguarding and, and maybe not conspiracies, but like um, like esoteric practices um, or like um, private uh, opaque self-organizing can be used as a tool of political resistance as much as it can be used by power to obscure its own workings. Um, so I think there's an increasing emphasis on um, groups of people um, creating opaque um, um, like opaque pockets of resistance that can't be co-opted because they are um, using some of the tools of like uh, conspiratorial planning. The history of conspiracy theories is really interesting because um, um, there's this great book by Erica Lagalise called uh, Occult Theories of Anarchism and it's about how like anarchist political projects but also lots of other kind of like knowledge based um, uh, like knowledge systems of knowledge um, uh, were um, originally kind of conspiratorial in um, their nature, and that was how they safeguarded and protected themselves. Um, and at this point, we think of conspiracies as the purview of, um, you know, the evil, like, lizards in charge. Um, but it was a very different, um, like, the idea of the conspiracy was, was very different. It was actually um, often seen as, like, a threat to centralization. And don't you see, uh, or do you think that perhaps this interest on both mysticism and conspiracy theories has to do with the eschatological state of liberalism and the way that its promise is is just seen as impossible to fulfill? And uh, now, you know, we see it crumbling more and more. I'm not sure I heard that. You said eschatological? My state of liberalism. Ah. Uh. You mean like the end of the world and time and like no, 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 of, of, of the liberal idea? Mm, yeah, I mean the liberal idea. Mm, yeah, that's run out. Like, um, I don't, that's run its course. Um, yeah, I also think like mm, millenarian ways of thinking, meaning like the the end is nigh. Um, are nothing new and like it's the end has always been nigh for certain groups of people the end has already happened for a lot of people genocides have happened apocalypses have happened so um, not to trivialize any of them like the moment that we're in there's a different magnitude when all of the planet is facing extinction and um, and that's you know there there is kind of like a like a provable endpoint in sight to a certain way of life um, and I think that the only difference is that, um, yeah, that science can demonstrate that that's what's happening. <laughs> but the feeling of the end of something has been pretty consistent, um, you know, especially since modernity. But um, but like throughout the Middle Ages, like the end was always about to, to happen. And that there's something kind of like, I mean, it's like titillating and exciting, the end of days. Um, and I often like I want to avoid that kind of like... Um, um, I don't know, alarmist, catastrophic, whatever, because that's what liberalism thinks we can combat climate change with, is alarmism. And that's like certainly not the case. Well, but for example, today uh, we have uh, more elements to the present list of existential risks in the context of the, the war that uh, in Ukraine are... Uh, all these elements that are triggering again sensations and fears towards a potential 
uh, use of nuclear weapons presents again uh, yeah this this idea that uh, it seems that we forgot about this no but obviously there is this uh, potential omnicide just because of yeah. geopolitics I, at its heart. Yeah. Totally. I think um, I'm really interested in the micro genre of literature um, post nuclear, um, like new um, religion novels. <laughs> oh, really? Sounds very <laughs> I mean, interesting. I think I've only got three, really. There's like, um, <laughs> there's like Ridley Walker, and then there's the Canticles of Leibowitz, and then there's this one by Lydia Millet. But if any, if you or anybody listening knows of any particularly good post-nuclear novels that have sort of like um, new religions emerging in the wake of a nuclear Oh, no, no. I am really interested because as well, I, I teach a module on the death of God. Um, mm -hmm. We have a section particularly uh, on, on this, no? on what's going on with our religion religious drives after a potential nuclear catastrophe no when we well, are able great yeah perfect reading list <laughs> yeah so yeah but my, my my point is that we knew okay that that omnicide is possible because science demonstrated this because we have the pictures of hiroshima and nagasaki because we have all this production of critical theory etc and the legacy of the frankfurt school etc <laughs> but still today i mean us Germany, UK, France, India, they have thousands of weapons, no? Uh, and, and, it's, and it's very interesting because the timeline of this and the timeline of this general awareness regarding the climate catastrophe is much different, no? We have 80 years of yeah, collective memory, etc. And then we have this way of trying to, to act on this. But quite, I mean, it's quite feasible that if someone uh, triggers a button, we can have a, a nuclear, like, omnicide. It's, it's completely possible. And we did nothing. In, I mean, we did nothing. I mean, nothing changed dramatically. Actually, if something changed, it was towards the development of more sophisticated nuclear weapons. Etc. So I find a very like weird relationship with yeah human-made existential risk, if you know what I mean. Sure. I mean, I would. I would. I mean, like in in for like several hundred years in the Middle Ages, like a large majority of not a large majority. Um, in, during several hundred years of the Middle Ages, large groups of people were very, very, very certain that the apocalypse was going to happen and they had evidence, which was their theological doctrine. Mm -hmm. And I would not compare theology to science-based evidence ever. That's not what I'm saying. But reality, the reality of um, catastrophe um, was as real to them as it is to me, right? Like whether or not yeah, my reality is based on something else. So... I guess like, yeah, we are living in, in some ways, like a totally, totally bizarre specific reality in other ways. Like 
I'm interested in the way that my reality looks a lot like somebody who's just lived through the bubonic plague <laughs> in like the 1400s. I mean, um, I guess the pandemic brought up a lot of interest in previous plagues. Um, but those um, connections um, and reading things from a really long time ago um, help me a lot. Um, it's not as if they make me hopeful, but they do help me think through, um, yeah, through like, um, I guess the consistency of certain, um, certain states of certain kinds of knowledge. But do you have there is emancipatory potential in this form of world building based on quite dystopian and speculative forms of, yeah, Uh, it could be writing or it could be artifacts like this podcast because Matching and I sometimes talk about uh, yeah, how we are focused many times because of the pandemic but because of as well many other problems and threats that if there is something that actually is um, we can put this dystopia and this bleak image of the world to work on emancipation or if this is just despair and, and a, a sort of awful reaction to the idea of let's put ourselves in the worst case scenario um uh, <laughs> i don't know i mean if we can <laughs> deal with this negativity okay because mm -hmm. our negative uh, images Uh, this in the past it it was used by punk by many different disciplines it was used in favor of emancipation so I do wonder about yeah this dystopian views that we are seeing in the last two years if this could bring forward some some forms of emancipation and your book to some extent uh, brings ideas that are, are beautiful, even though they are talking about pretty awful stuff, no? I hope so. Um, and I think, yes, for me, um, partially just because, um, like, experiencing the full range of human experience or, or finding out the many ways to be human um, is one of the best things we can do at the end of the world, <laughs> like <laughs> to try and, um, and, and collect all of the possibilities. Um, and, um, and I do think, I mean, a lot of the fiction that I look at in the book and, and a lot of the way that I think about my own writing is, um, is kind of like, you know, riding the crest of the wave or being, being at the end but being neither like doomsday conspiracy obsessed um, or um, like sort of like a basically like not withdrawing into the seats of privilege, for instance, or into ourselves or away from our contexts. Um, but staying engaged, I think, is pretty, pretty much as utopian as it gets. Um, and as far as like writing, I don't know, I, I really struggle to I mean, I always kind of want to say like you can be both like you can be a writer and you can also like be an anarchist or be like a you know you can do a lot of other things than being a creative person um and that there's no reason to say that those are the same all the time like i don't say that all my politics happen in my books like 
that would be um, delusional. <laughs> like there is another kind of political being that can happen in tandem with and through and alongside the work that's not the same as the written work. Um, and I find these kinds of modes really mutually supportive. Um, and I guess also I would just say like, um, um, Fiction works in the sense that it has feedback loops with reality. It's not causal in an obvious sense, but hyperstition is a real fact. And we can actually take a lot of inspiration from the fact that fake news invents real news and, um, you know, fake currencies invent real currencies and that there are these like super tight feedback loops between mutually, um, like, like mutual fictions um, that create and, and have real effects. And I think as a fiction writer that, helps me imagine ways that fiction could um, could have a give and take. Mm-hmm.